Warning, this iconoclastic episode of Seriously Wrong is being silenced, and we need to fight back. This can't be right, right? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. I am your co-host, Sean. And I'm Aaron. Today, we've got an interview with Nathan J. Robinson, who is just a, a terrific fella. He's delightful. I, I wasn't able to be there for the interview, but just absolutely delightful. Oh, and before we get on to the interview, I just got to say quickly, we love doing the show. If you can donate to the show, it makes a huge difference. We've got Patreon, PayPal, etc. There's other ways to help us as well. Just want to get that out of the way. And now on with the show. Let's hop right into Nathan. Hop right in. And just open up Nathan's side door and... <laughs> oh, hop into him. <laughs> just... <laughs> door on the side of his body and now we're inside. Yeah, him. when you said that, I imagine Nathan is like a vehicle that was going to... Well, yeah, he does drive the episode with his vibrant personality and... <laughs> Today on the show, we have Nathan J. Robinson, editor of the excellent leftist magazine, Current Affairs, and author of books such as Trump, Anatomy of a Monstrosity, as well as the host of the Current Affairs podcast, which is a really wonderful podcast that's worth checking out. Thanks for coming on the show today, Nathan. Thanks, Sean. Nice to be with you. First, I'd like to talk about a concept that you recently tweeted about, the intellectual light web. What does that phrase mean? Where does that come from? (laughs) Well, that phrase is a takeoff of something that is known as... Uh, I, I hate this expression, right? Uh, the intellectual dark web is the original expression, which has been coined to describe a group of conservative and that awful phrase, classically liberal, conservative and classically liberal thinkers, thinkers in quotes there, such as Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Sam Harris, Joe Rogan and such. And there was a big New York Times profile a couple of months back about these figures in the supposed intellectual dark web who are what uh, writer Barry Weiss called a collection of, quote, iconoclastic thinkers, academic renegades and media personalities who sound unlike anything else happening and are locked out of legacy outlets and building their own media channels. And they talk about supposedly they're willing to challenge taboos, left taboos about race and social justice and gender and religion and and the immigration and such. But they're a bunch of uh, horrific, nasty people, and I don't care for them very much. So someone suggested to me, and I can't remember the name of the person who suggested it, unfortunately, so I can't give credit where it's due. Someone suggested uh, that uh, we adopt for ourselves the label the intellectual light web, which instead of being dark and sinister and cruel, we could use to describe the sort of group of uh, fun loving lefties that I happen to inhabit and I happen to enjoy inhabiting. The group of people who combine left-wing politics with a dash of humor and a sense of joy and wonder at the world. Well, that sounds good. I mean, a sense of joy and wonder and and humor. I mean, who who's against that? Well, I don't think anybody's <laughs> against humor. I don't want to cast people as humorless, but it's certainly true, I think, that... <sighs> 
Well, if you read a lot of left-wing publications, or if you listen to say- uh, I really hesitate to name names. Okay, look, if you listen to Democracy Now!, it's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) I love Amy Goodman, I love Democracy Now!, I think they do excellent journalism, but let's be honest, it's not funny and it's not that much fun. It's kind of a downer, it's kind of a major downer. And being on the left, you know, it's always going to be kind of a downer, because you're pointing out all of the horrible problems with the world and all of the things that are bleak and brutal and upsetting. The lives of refugees and the prison system and war and poverty. And these things are very serious, and so we spend a lot of our time trying to draw people's attention to them. But as a result, if you read, if you open, say, I don't know, The Nation, it's not always a fun experience. But I don't think it has to be unfun. And one of the things we've been trying to do at Current Affairs, and again, I really don't want Mitch to insult them because they do all wonderful, wonderful work, but I just feel like it's so important not to have people be more depressed than they came in because that's going to make their lives worse and we're about making people's lives better so at current affairs we've tried to combine you know very serious political analysis with jokes and a little bit of lightheartedness and you in fact have contributed some wonderful cartoons to our magazine before oh yeah thanks i loved doing comics for current affairs and i was like really stoked because it's my favorite magazine not to (laughs) it's just awesome when you can contribute to something that's just like your favorite thing of something. And if people subscribe, they can see your cartoons in our archive. They get full access to our archive. (laughs) Yeah, uh... it's like something like the first six issues. You can find some signature Sean Villiers originals. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by Ben Shapiro's high-powered microscope that allows you to zoom in so close to the chromosomes you can see the biological pronouns. Good afternoon. My name is Ben Shapiro. Biological men are men, and you have to use their biological pronouns. So I invented the most powerful microscope in history. I took some cells from a biological man, and I put them under the microscope, zoomed way in, very, very close, closer than you'd ever think to zoom. And right there, there was a little H and an E. And that spells he, and that's a fact, and that's a biological pronoun inscribed in our DNA. So, by my microscope. Now that is one rebellious and edgy product. Thank you so much, Ben Shapiro, for pushing boundaries. No problem, I'm a real contrarian. Not easy being Ben, I'll tell you that much. So the intellectual dark web, now this group of Mm. people who sort of claim to be centrist, they're obsessed with reason. They they love love the idea that like, oh, other people are being unreasonable. And like, we've Mm -hmm. forged this small group of extremely reasonable people that are willing to, you know, have long conversations with open racists where we don't challenge them as like one of the means of, (laughs) I'm thinking of like the Sam Harris, Charles Murray interview here of like... He's interviewing this guy who's just like blatantly a racist. His entire career has been based on basically slandering large groups of the population. And then Sam Harris's question for him is, why is the left so unreasonable to you? Why are you a hero? Why, why do they call you a racist? Isn't that why are they being so mean? And and what's so I, I think you hit on the point, which is they talk a lot about rationality and reason. They use those words constantly. They sort of invoke the enlightenment a lot and civil discourse and debate. 
but it is kind of someone sort of described it as the performance of reason rather than actual reason. So actual reason and actual rationality is you know, self-criticism, thinking through what you're saying and challenging it and looking at counter-arguments and dealing with the counter-arguments and being scrupulously fair to your opponents. But that's not what they do. Like, if anyone doubts the things that you've just said about Charles Murray, like open racist, because some people go, well, that's a pejorative. How can you prove it? Well, it's very easy to prove, actually. I wrote a long, long article called Why is Charles Murray Odious? that is now in a book called Interesting Times. And in there, I went through all of his writings from not just the bell curve but also this book he wrote called um what is it human accomplishment oh yeah where no, he that, talks about the human accomplishment <laughs> shit i was like what the fuck charles murray like i knew you he were shitty like- but <laughs> he has like charts showing European cultural superiority. Like statistically, he thinks he's proven that Africans are culturally worthless. <laughs> like, like, I mean, you couldn't get more racist. Like, I don't know what it means to be racist if it's not like diminishing the intellectual capacities and cultural achievements of members of other races. But that's the thing, right? I mean, you could have a civil, quote, discussion with Charles Murray, I guess. But if you have him in a room and you don't go, hey, Charles Murray, what the fuck is with this thing you wrote about European cultural superiority? And instead you just go, why is the left so mean? Then you're not doing reason in any useful sense of the word. In this intellectual dark web, why do you think that they're so afraid to debate you? (laughs) Why do you think that... Well... I think it's because they have a brand, okay? And their brand is, you know, Barry Weiss talks about how they're all oppressed, right? They're all silenced uh, by the mainstream media. And they're not actually silenced, as you can tell from the fact that they're getting all their photos published in the New York Times, and they're getting long, flattering profiles uh, written about them. But their big thing is the left is afraid of facts. Ben Shapiro has facts don't care about your feelings. You know, the left is this horde of uh, unreasoning, this kind of beast that won't engage in dialogue and that is, is scared of the truth. And so if you are a leftist who comes back and calls their bluff, right, and goes, well, okay, I'm not afraid of the truth. <laughs> I don't mind defending my ideas. Let's have a chat. The problem is that it it poses a gigantic threat to their entire brand. If you take, say, Milo Yiannopoulos, who's the um, real epitome of this kind of bluffing, Milo would go around to various campuses and none of his speeches were about defending conservative ideas. They would all be about how the left wants to stifle free speech, how the left just can't handle arguments. And that's all it was about, right? That's all. He doesn't have ideas. He just has criticisms of the left. But if you show those criticisms of the left to be false and you go, okay, let's debate ideas. He's got nothing. He has absolutely nothing. I've read his book, his book, Dangerous. Uh, There's all the controversy around his book deal. And his book, every chapter is just called Why Gay People Hate Me, Why Feminists Hate Me, Why Black Lives Matter Hates Me. There's no substantive content. The framing of like writing a book that's like, why such and such group hates me, it feels so much like weird high school personality. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, you know, these assholes, they're such pricks. I mean, support me. Look at what dicks they are. It's just such an immature, low hanging fruit mode of politics. It just makes no sense. It is idiotic and it does make no sense, but I will say, 
I think the left has not done as much as we could do to try and challenge this. Because one of the reasons it works is because we've had this idea on the left for so long where you don't debate Charles Murray, don't debate Ben Shapiro, don't debate Marley Yiannopoulos because it legitimizes them and it makes them look credible. And because we have this idea when they come and they say, well, the left doesn't want to debate me, it's true that we don't want to debate them. Well, I'm not quite sure that that's the right approach because I feel like it feeds into their whole pitch. And my preferred approach instead is to go, like, bring it on. Just become really good at responding to their arguments so that they can't say it anymore and they look foolish. Because if you had a debate with them, you could win because they don't know what to think. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks for coming to my intellectual dark web themed comedy show. You know, I've obviously got some progressive and socialist views, but I also like to have a good time, so I also can tell some jokes. So, so d does everyone know why they're called the intellectual dark web? Anyone? Do you know why they're called the intellectual dark web, sir? No, that's not true. They're called the intellectual dark web because sexist Uncle Web was already taken. Yeah, it's already taken, folks. It's a meeting site for sexist uncles. Uh, here's another joke. Where does Ben Shapiro sleep at night? In his puppet case. In his puppet case, folks. Hey, uh, here's a joke. How is Steven Pinker doing today? Does anyone know how Steven Pinker's doing? He's doing the best he's ever been. Steven Pinker's doing the best he's ever been today, folks. See, the thing that drives me crazy about the intellectual dark web is that frequently the critics of the intellectual dark web are making ungenerous criticisms that aren't really like the interesting thing to criticize about the individuals. So it's like, if someone's saying that Hitler stole a popsicle and you know that Hitler didn't steal the popsicle, it's like, should you defend? Be like, well, technically he didn't steal the popsicle. Just and then you get it, people like, you're defending Hitler. And you're like, well, I'm not defending Hitler for everything he's ever done. I'm just saying in this context, he didn't steal the popsicle. Like, let's not criticize him for that. There's enough to criticize him for. And they're like, oh, so you think he didn't take the popsicle? And I'm like, I know for a fact. Like, I just, if you look at the tape, it's pretty straightforward. He didn't take the popsicle. It doesn't matter overall. Like, he can still, there's other legitimate reasons to be mad at him. But the popsicle thing... And they're like, oh, look at this Hitler defender over here. And you're like, I'm not defending him against one specific incorrect claim, but I'm not defending his legacy. Anyways, this has been a great show. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. We now go to Wrongtown Mall, where children are lined up for the holidays, taking turns to sit on Sam Harris's lap. Oh, wait, this isn't going to make any sense at all unless we explain a little bit of the cultural history of Wrongtown and how these mall Sam Harris's came to be. So, Wrongtown City Council decided that they needed to completely abolish nonsense and irrationality within Wrongtown, and one of the biggest targets on their list was Santa Claus. Now, obviously, it's ridiculous one man could fly around the world in one night handing out presents for all the children because he's watching them, that makes no sense whatsoever. And so it was resolved that in order to keep the fun of the holidays alive, instead they would have a Mall Sam Harris, where children would sit on the Mall Sam Harris's lap and he would tell them whether or not they've been rational. And if they've been rational that year, then they do get presents. This has been the proud tradition of Wrongtown for nine years. 
That's the context, so we now go to the mall. It's a holiday spread. Right at the middle of it, sitting on his holiday throne, is a mall Sam Harris. Kids lined up. We now go to Wrongtown Mall. Welcome to Mall Sam Harris's lap, little boy or girl. My name is Amal Sam Harris, and first, quickly, I have a seven-minute pitch listing in detail every reason why it would be rational to donate to the Mall Sam Harris's union. And you can either listen to that or you can skip it. I would like to skip it today, please. Okay, so let's move right on to determining whether or not you've been rational. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw this thought experiment at you. Okay. Imagine there's a school bus full of children, mm-hmm. but on board the school bus is a giant bucket of the world's most deadly poison, and the school bus is hurtling towards the ocean. And if the school bus goes into the ocean, the poison will spread across the entire world and harm the planet irrevocably forever. You are sitting at a desk with a button with a long-range missile with a nuke on the end, and if you hit the button, it will blow the school bus up, leaving the poison harmlessly up in the mountains. So, do you think it's good to nuke a school bus full of children? This reminds me of when Wrongtown City Council blew up that school bus full of children. Is that what you're oh, talking no, about No, here? no, no. Nothing to do with any real-world events. This is a separate thing. But it sounds thing. like it's a fake scenario. Like, there's some sort of bucket of poison that could taint the whole ocean. It, your only tool to stop it is through a nuclear bomb. And if the- those things were all true, A, then B, then C, line, then line, then line, what would be I, the culmination of that? Well, would you nuke those children and explode their tiny little bodies? Or would you rather that the poison kills everyone? Sam, I think there's a ethical problem with nuking school bus full of children, regardless of context. And in the political context that we find ourselves in with very real bombings of school buses full of children led by our most politically powerful people, there's an ethical problem with having flippant thought experiments about the bombing of school buses of children, Sam. I'm sorry, that is not rational. You are objectively evil this year. Try again next year. No gifts for you. Please get off my lap. Next child. Hi, Sam. Oh boy, do I have a thought experiment for you. 29. Cute, innocent babies dangling over a vat of acid. Are you talking about the incident where the oh, no, 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 mayor no. in the vat of I'm acid? I'm just saying, if these children were genetically engineered to be like evil vampire bats, and if they got free, they would infect the rest of humanity, wouldn't it be right to dip them in the vat of acid? Today in Confirmation Bias News, members of the intellectual dark web claim that the left refuses to debate them. Have you ever debated someone who is pro-equality of outcome? No, they don't debate me. Dr. Charles Murray. You can ask questions, you can make statements about things I have actually said and ask me to defend them. We like to debate people on a one-on-one level. We'll go door-to-door, we'll talk to anybody. No, I haven't because people don't do it. They don't ask me to do it. You don't see leftists getting sucked into these conversations because leftists are too busy taking over the media. What are the things that you're saying that people get offended by? Because I had a chapter in a book. I I should rephrase that. They've never read this book. But is it really true 
that the left won't debate? Is it really true that the left hasn't read their books? We now go live to the Octagon, where one of our reporters interviews master debater Nathan J. Robinson about why these men won't debate him. What's the deal with Ben Shapiro? Why is he so afraid to debate the left? Why is he terrified to talk about these ideas? Well, you know, to ask the why question, we'd have to understand the depths of Ben Shapiro's psyche, and that's a hard thing to penetrate. We understand that he is afraid because people have been taunting him on social media for months about the fact that he refuses to debate me. Students at the University of Michigan have even booked a 600-person room to debate, and yet he won't for some reason. I think it may have something to do with the fact that I wrote a 7,000-word article called The Cool Kids Philosopher in which I went through nearly everything Ben Shapiro had ever written and showed why it was either irrational, immoral, or both. And so I think I'd be afraid, too, if I wrote things that had those qualities and people pointed it out to me. Wow. Ben Shapiro, are you going to take that, or are you going to step up to the plate Debate Nathan J. Robinson, show you're not afraid of facts and reason, that you're not afraid of the truth. What is the deal with Charles Murray? Why is he so afraid of facts and logic, and why won't he debate? Well, Charles Murray is afraid of facts and logic because all facts and logic contradict Charles Murray's positions, whose books like The Bell Curve and Human Accomplishment are pretty openly racist. So it's pretty understandable that Charles Murray would be deathly afraid of going head-to-head with someone like me who's actually read Charles Murray's various books and so actually knows what he says in them. So there you have it. Charles Murray, don't be a coward. Step up to the plate. Coward. Debate Nathan J. Robinson. It's time. Let's talk about these ideas. Why are you so afraid of facts and reason? Where did he be afraid of them? I I thought he loved them because he says he loves them. Open up yourself to the possibility of being completely destroyed by facts and logic. You just have to. No choice. Otherwise they hate speech. What's the deal with this Jordan Peterson guy? He's one of the father figureheads of the intellectual dark web. Why won't he debate you? Well, I don't know. I mean, your country of Canada inflicted him on the world, so you'll have to answer for why Jordan Peterson exists. But the thing that I did was I read a book that nobody else seems to have actually managed to get through, which is Jordan Peterson's academic magnum opus, Maps of Meaning. And what I found out when I read Maps of Meaning was that Jordan Peterson can't even express a clear thought. And because I know this, Jordan Peterson doesn't want to respond. Jordan Peterson knows that I know this because Jordan Peterson has sent several dismissive tweets about my article. And in those tweets, Jordan Peterson has proven that he can't actually respond to any of the things I've said because I have actually read his book carefully. And so I think that's why he's afraid. I think it's understandable that he's afraid. But I think he shouldn't be afraid. I think he should have the courage of his convictions. And uh, we can have a chat about how little he knows and how bad his book is. Jordan, if you're listening, reach out. Let's set up the debate. The left is not only ready and willing to debate, but we feel that you are being a bit of a coward about it. We, we got, we're ready to do it, to really engage these ideas in detail. And you gotta step up. Be courageous. Stop being so afraid of the left. Stop being afraid of talking about ideas, Jordan. There was an article about you, and it was like, Ben Shapiro is the cool kid's philosopher or something. Yeah, something like that. Times, yeah. I, yeah, and it was like, how did it's, that it's happen? It's a new one to me. But, 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 <laughs> right. and if you're an open-minded person who actually likes to hear exchange of ideas and you're willing to admit that there's a piece of evidence you may not have considered yet. Because I always think, well, you know, you might have something to tell me. That's my rule number 11, by the way. Yeah. Right. Assume that the person you're listening to might know something you don't. Right. And and because then you can, they can tell that to you, and if you learn it, then you don't have to run face first into a brick wall.
The postmodern neo-Marxist. Uh, son, son, could I come in? Sure, Dad. Yeah, anytime. Oh no, you're not. You're not watching Jordan Peterson lectures again, are you? Yeah, he has some pretty good wisdom. You know, like sometimes he just takes the long way around to get to common moral lessons, but I find it pretty useful. It's like Dad wisdom. Well, we talked about this before. You know that he's a pseudo-scientific hierarchist. His argument doesn't make any sense. He equates some people running faster than others with the fastest runners getting to boss the slower runners around. He says it's natural, and then he connects that to like pecking orders in nature. It's not a coherent argument he's making. I don't really like it when he talks about politics. I think he should stick to free associative mythopoetic musings. But yeah, I mean, this even trying to put on my giraffe ears here and just like really steel man the guy, like the guy's got a bit of like a messiah complex and he's yeah. convinced that he's saving everyone, but he's he doesn't really seem to understand very well the difference between what he knows really well and what he just sort of knows about. He treats them with equal conviction. That's true. His understanding of day-to-day experiential psychology is maybe a lot better than his understanding of postmodernism, which seems like it was gleaned from right-wing conspiracy websites that talk about cultural Marxism. He's kind of like, you know, Uncle Frank? He's kind of sexist, but we still love him anyway. Well, yeah, you know my stance on your Uncle Frank. He's part of the family, he's welcome over for dinner anytime, but those comments have to stop. Maybe we can get Jordan Peterson to stop. Also, that thing he does where he's like, where he's like, I thought about this for a really long time. A really long time. Yeah, you thought about genocide for 40 years. It's a really weird rhetorical choice. And he does it with a lot of stuff. To emphasize that he's really serious about a point and be like, and look, man, I thought about this for weeks. I was just thinking and thinking. That's when I figured it out. Yeah, and sometimes he says that he chooses his words very carefully but what i think he means is that he feels his words really deeply and he's speaking from his gut and not from a place of consistent rational logic but i think that's what people like about him he really feels what he's saying and maybe that's the danger of him too but Well, I think that is really, ultimately, he's not just a novelty in the fact that he has a legitimate capacity to be sort of a demagogue. And when you mix in people taking him very seriously with these sort of reactionary politics, which aren't well thought out, although I think he's probably capable of thinking more deeply about these things, but he's sort of rigidly in this certain mindset, I think there is a real risk of him accidentally punching above his weight a bit and and causing some real real trouble but i mean you got to admit like look at my room it's really clean right he's better than ben shapiro ben shapiro never got me to clean my room that guy is an evil little gremlin with no redeeming qualities a partial agreement with you there son i do agree that ben shapiro should be put back in his puppet box but i you know jordan peterson it makes sense they're together. They're on the same continuum in a way. Like it's just He makes me feel good like I can do things. He's a more powerful charlatan, but he's still a charlatan. So. Have you ever read his book, Maps of Meaning? 500 pages long? I God read it, no, Dad. Son. God no. I read the whole thing. Really? He maps out the meta structure of reality and it's perfect and every and he knows everything. He's not a charlatan. He's the second coming of Jesus. He's going to save the whole planet. 
And he's done way more for me than you have. He's my real dad now. You're not my dad anymore. I don't care if he has flaws. I'm going to believe everything he says. Okay, well, can't believe I lost another son to this guy. I was watching some some videos of different people from the intellectual dark web sphere interacting with each other and prepping for this for like thinking about yeah. them because yeah believe it or not I'm not like spending a lot of time with Ben Shapiro in my day to day life I honestly I don't get why these people are put together like I guess they have commonalities but like it feels like there's a really big difference between like Brett Weinstein and Ben Shapiro like I think Brett Weinstein seems like a basically decent guy. Whereas Ben Shapiro seems like a wretched little puppet man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to show empathy to Ben Shapiro. I can't believe, he's got a book called Bullies, How the Left's Culture of Silence, blah, 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 something, something like that. And like, sure, okay, there's people on the left who participate in bullying. And I think it's... Th- there's it's, people all over the political spectrum who participate in bullying. Totally. And like, left but, bullying gets under my skin too, Ben Shapiro. There we go. There's some empathy. We, but also, Ben, <laughs> your public persona is bullying. Like, you look like a kid teasing another kid like anytime you are in any sort of confrontation in public it's like yeah his it's like rise to prominence smug mostly from these ben shapiro destroys youtube videos There's just something really creepy about that puppet man i, I, I want to find something i like about him but i haven't been able to yet i anyway. <laughs> i think he's got he's got some cute dimps some cute dimples on him but that's the nicest thing i'll say about ben shapiro oh th- here's a nice thing i'll say about ben shapiro there's absolutely nothing wrong with his height and that's the wrong thing to criticize him for yeah you're right no it's sort of criticizing the right person for the wrong reasons right i think it's good that you brought this up because there might be someone who's listening to this who's a guy who's short and then when we when i attack ben shapiro for being short this guy who's really nice and doesn't do any of these horrible things that ben shapiro does he's like oh they're reminding me of how I feel inadequate in this world. Did you call him short? Well, I called him a little puppet man. A little puppet man. I was thinking of his height when I said it. (laughs) I didn't hear it that way. (laughs) But yeah, no, that makes sense. But like, okay, sorry, going back to why are these people grouped together? They're unified by anti-SJWism. These guys have all had such strong reactions to those darn campus leftists out of control. Because even like Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson don't agree on very many things. But they come together, and they come together with Ben Shapiro and Brett Weinstein about how out of control those darn blue hairs are. And they feel personally victimized by the blue hairs, and they're standing up for themselves against them. It's it's not just a criticism of them, it's a position in relation to them. Yeah, they feel like there's a limited spectrum of allowable discourse that's enforced by social justice people yeah, and they see, saying, they like, see them as very powerful and an example of that power that they have is like when ben shapiro's booked to talk on a college campus they protest outside and then try to get the event shut down but like i think the act of protesting like that is kind of a show of powerlessness like these activists they can't call up the dean and be like hey man like we have the cultural hegemony this guy's not allowed here you have to cancel it and the dean's like oh yeah right away like let me call the police in. The protesting is, like, I don't want to say that there's absolutely no power behind it because I think there is a social power, like there is a social pressure that comes with... Yeah, and, and sometimes they score wins. Like, the IDW people talk about James Damore a lot. 
And, you know, he wrote this Google memo about how men and women have different interests and that's rooted in biology. And so maybe we shouldn't be trying to recruit half women coders, or if we do want to do that, maybe we should try and cater it to them by like having the be more social or things. But it's like there, there's some biological essentialism in there and people did misrepresent what he said and he ended up getting fired and it probably wasn't fair, but it was also not what normally happens in the world. Like he, he's an extraordinary example, but he's kind of trotted out as this is like, this is the world we live in now. Well, and yeah, one of the critiques here, I guess, with that, that I think we should try to remedy in the intellectual light web charity Jordan Peterson's, what was it, Channel 3 interview where she keeps on being like, so you're saying this? And she's Channel like, four, yeah. she's like, so you're saying sort of what you said, except in the least charitable way possible in a way designed to make you sound like a really bad person. And then all his fans are like, that's not what he said. And then everyone makes fun of his fans being like, it's not what he said. That's what you sound like. <laughs> it's like, but you, it's not really what he said. It's like, yeah, why is yeah. it does get frustrating. And I understand why they're frustrated when what they're saying isn't being engaged with but they do this dishonest thing of putting that all onto the left like it's only the left who does this they'll say it's the same on the right as well but after like really ripping into the left for a while like they'll never be like the right is bad this way and this way and yeah, this it's, way it's never and the left's the same yeah it's never half an hour of like criticism of the right they're not worth talking about unlike the left they're really worth talking we have to talk about it when the leftists do it all like to the moon <laughs> but they, they also they have a deferential relationship to power right like support hierarchy more than usual also well i mean maybe not joe rogan maybe joe rogan and brett weinstein are innocent of this one but yeah i think joe rogan's probably the most is it weird to say anarchist of the group joe rogan's <laughs> the anarchist of the group <laughs> the weinstein bros are more social democraty area like bernie supporters outright bernie supporters both of them so if you're yeah if you're talking about hierarchy as in like capitalist hierarchies that are formed being good like that's a major jordan peterson talking point that they're based on merit and that's good and they're important to maintain they're contrarians but they're contrarians for the way things are they're like you know conservative contrarians thinking of like sam harris's defense of the war in the Middle East. For people who talk about being taken out of context all the time, Sam Harris especially, like the Muslim thing and this IQ thing, he wants to take these studies about racial IQ tests and like rip them from all context and look at them in isolation under a microscope. When he had Ezra Klein on his podcast, Ezra Klein was pointing out, hey, you know, like we in Vox ran three different articles with experts from the field talking about the nuances of what IQ means. And like, nobody's debating that these studies exist, but like, there's context to that. There's this broad historical context, there's more specific context. But if context is really important for understanding that when Sam Harris writes, you know, in defense of torture, he means something else like very specific and only at certain times and like most of the time it's really bad and like you got to read the whole article and get his whole argument and he's not saying torture is great or anything you need the context but then when it comes to these other issues like interpreting the quran like it's just we, we have to remove these words we have to rip them from context well and that's that's like the irony of the intellectual dark web, right? Is that their unifying thing is a hatred of or a resentment towards sort of the social justice warrior menace. 
that has all these characteristics. But then all of those characteristics that the social justice warrior archetype has, they present in different inverse forms, like the lack of curiosity, the bad faith reading of everything, trying to expel bad ideas. Yeah, I've, I've never heard a single one of them steel man. Any argument coming out of like a women's studies thing or a gender studies thing or queer studies, like any of these things, and like really try to steel man the argument and respond to it they're not being curious about what these people actually think. And that's a problem that we all have from time to time. But as a public intellectual who's staking one's reputation on demanding that openness from others, you really have to do it then. Yeah. That's my rule number 11, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Assume that the person you're listening to might know something you don't. And, and because they can tell that to you. And if you learn it, then you don't have to run face first into a brick wall. So a lot of people have sort of accused leftists generally of being scolds, you know, mm. not having a sense of humor, not wanting to sure. engage ideas. Like, do you think there's a validity to that critique? Does that come from a real place? <sighs> yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things is that there are a lot of people who need scolding, <laughs> right? I mean, one of the reasons that we're scolds is because, like... That's kind of inherent in, you know, people say, oh, you know, the left is so, they're so proud of their virtue and all they could do is get, you know, uh, what they call virtue signaling. Oh, I'm so superior to you. You're an awful person. But, I mean, one of the reasons we come across that way, though, is because, like, a lot of people are awful people. <laughs> and then, like, we spend a lot of time pointing out what awful people they are. And I think it gets carried away, obviously. And I think... I think especially there can be a tendency to not forgive sincere people their mistakes and not assume good faith on people's part and to write them off very quickly for doing the wrong problematic thing. And so I try and counsel the left towards greater empathy and greater understanding and a greater willingness to accept humans in their flaws because that's one of the things that we're encouraging people to do like so for example i always say like one of the things that i as a leftist want people to do is sympathize with people who are on death row for committing murder now if i want people to sympathize with people who are on death row and who are murderers then i think sympathizing with people who voted for trump is like <laughs> like you have to be able to empathize with that person if you can empathize with people who literally murdered people because it's just it's so much worse so like the left to me is about empathy and i think we do need to become more understanding and careful not to slip too much into being judgmental and overly sanctimonious on the other hand i also like a certain amount of sanctimony is necessary in a world where people in power do horrible cruel things that need calling out <laughs> Uh, so I guess I feel like there's a diversity of opinion here on the left. But like when you look at, say, I found a tweet of yours from five years ago. Oh, God. And oh your, God. your tweet from five years ago said... What did I say? <laughs> no, I, I don't have a tweet. Don't worry. Oh, you, you don't actually have a tweet of mine from five years <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah, no, sorry. I didn't mean to... I, didn't. I was worried that this was going to be a thing where you held me account to account for something problematic. I found a tweet of yours from five years ago, and me and all my people are ready to launch a campaign tonight <laughs> to let everyone know that you revealed you were secretly evil then, and it's proof that everything you've done since then is better represented by that one tweet than yeah. your total library. This sort of like lack of charity, finding yeah. someone who's made an honest mistake or has uh, was out of line and deserves a critique, yeah. definitely, but then becomes attached to like reputation in a really fundamental way where suddenly someone has moved from a regular sort of 
person who's in public to mm-hmm. someone who is, quote, literally trash. Yes. Although, you know, there's this other thing, though, where sometimes one tweet could tell you an awful lot about a person. <laughs> right. So, like, for example, Ben Shapiro has this tweet, you know, Israelis like to build and Arabs like to bomb shit and live in sewage. Right. And it's from 2013, I think. So it's five years ago. So you can say, well, that's just one tweet five years ago. <laughs> but also, like, what the fuck kind of person ever says that? And, well, it's part of a pattern, and, too, and, with Shapiro. It's not, that's not one point yeah. of data. You know, that's the peak of the mountain. That's- it's the peak. And, and for example, the other one I, I think of is like Kevin Williamson of the National Review who got hired by the Atlantic magazine. And then it was discovered that he, I think, sent a tweet saying that women who have abortions should be hanged. And he'd repeated it on a podcast. And conservatives have all come and, and portrayed him as a kind of free speech martyr because he got fired for that tweet. And I don't know, I feel like, you know, that's a really bad thing to say. (laughs) Like, I'm not sure you should have a job at a mainstream media outlet if you say something awful like that. I mean, if you come out and say, okay, that was a horrible opinion. I, I feel really bad about that. I've grown a lot as a person. I think we should be willing to forgive, but also... Like, yeah, should, you can see least... into people's souls through their tweets sometimes. <laughs> and in order to forgive, you have to at least like ask for forgiveness. You have to be like, this <laughs> this was a mistake. Yes. And now we go to the apology that Ben Shapiro never delivered about that horrible tweet. That tweet is still up to this day. Ben Shapiro is still racking up racist likes on this idiotic tweet. He's never apologized for it and he never will apologize for it. But this is what it would sound like if he did. Thank you for coming to my press conference. Just have one announcement to make. It's very important. I pride myself on rationality, on being reasonable, on facts. Facts don't care about your feelings. And turns out facts also don't care about my feelings. And uh, you know, about five years ago, I had some really racist feelings. And I put them into a tweet. I said, Israelis like to build things and Arabs like to bomb them and live in sewage. Turns out it's not true. Arabs have built a lot of things. There's a great history I was apparently completely unaware of. It's a historical fact that they've built not just beautiful buildings, some of the most beautiful buildings in the world, but cities, civilizations, philosophical edifices. There's been a lot of building. Another fact is that nobody, it turns out, likes to live in open sewage. Not many surveys turn up a zero number, but when they checked this one, zero people, didn't matter the ethnicity or any other marker, just nobody said, yes, I would like that. So that's a fact, and those facts contradict my tweet. Want to put this on the record, I was wrong. The facts weren't with me. It was morally abhorrent, and I hope to start making up for that from now on. I apologize to everyone, but especially to Arabs and the people of Palestine. I, I'm sorry. I was wrong. And that's what it would have sounded like if... Ben Shapiro apologized for his wretched, wretched tweet, which still makes me cringe to hear people repeat what's in it. It's just 
Really an awful tweet. Back to the show. Come on, Sebastian. Sebastian's pulling ahead. Come on, Ben Shapiro's dimple. Go, 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 Ben Shapiro's dimple. I can't believe you placed a bet on Ben Shapiro's dimple. I thought it would seem like a strong horse just based on its race record. No, who doesn't have a good race record? The intellectual dark web. That reminds me, there's something I need to talk to you about. Oh, sure. What are horse races for? I just can't keep it uh, under the surface. I was looking through your old tweets. You know, I was scrolling back really deep and... uh, Four or five years ago, I found a tweet of yours. Kind of made me think that you might be trash. Oh. Sorry, it's always awkward to tell a friend. Tra- that, like, I read this what tweet, the and tweet? then my thought is, maybe he's trash. You were praising some of Sam Harris's writing. Sam oh. Harris, the Ooh, right. uh, torture apologist. The leading neoconservative of the atheist movement. Yeah, well, I'm definitely I'm not with him on the torture thing. And I think, like... You know, it just when I was a new atheist, he was kind of my favorite, and his writings on consciousness and stuff were very accessible and like d- clicked me into this space of like understanding qualia. You know, it's just he was reiterating Thomas Nagel's what it is like to be a bat and like referencing it. This is the guy who's like racial profiling is good, right? And like you tweeting that yeah. you like him. I just, I more like, you know, what he says his main project is, is he wants to So wait, you actually reconcile. still like him? Well, I mean, not so much, but I'm just saying this project he has like to reconcile Buddhist thought and meditation with a secular ideology is not you know that unique to him, but he's he does some decent work there. I don't think, and he's pretty good on Trump and Brett Kavanaugh. If you've ever heard him on those, he's, like he makes some gestures in the direction of like, oh maybe there will be a witch hunt against men, but he's also like, yeah, her testimony was really convincing, and Brett Kavanaugh lied a lot. But this is the shithead who said that it might be justifiable to do a preemptive nuclear strike on the Islamic world. Yeah, like what it is for me, like the real darkness in Sam Harris. It's like he believes in this positivistic objective morality as being this thing you can calculate and it just is true. There's good and bad objectively. There's good and bad and bad ideas are disproportionately concentrated in the books of Islam. The motherload of bad ideas objectively And then, yeah, all the foreign policy bomb stuff and apologism for American body counts. And you kind of mix those three elements together. And he doesn't doesn't go all the way, unless it's in a thought experiment, like you mentioned. But it's not hard to see where those three premises lead when you combine them. His objective morality, his focus on Islam with his neocon foreign policy all of the pieces are there to just build real something really awful and like genocidal does that make sense am i am i trash you know what you're not total trash like a little bit i mean everyone's a little bit trash we've all been a little bit trash before so you're not gonna throw me out you know i'm still might be good for something with the rest of my life yeah i don't think we should completely dispose of you as an individual you mean it no i mean it i mean it by the way did you bet for total trash he came in third. You took it all home with Ben Shapiro's dimples. Well, I looked at his record on races, and it was good. Unlike the real Ben Shapiro, yeah. Oh, yeah, awful. Worse on transphobia, for sure, but bad across the board. Actually, not even necessarily worse. He's more insistent on the transphobia. Like, yeah, he just doesn't shut the fuck up about it. It's yeah. just, like, banal and cruel at the same time. 
By the way, did you bet on Banal and Cruel at the same time? He didn't do very well, but I thought about betting for him. There's a role for criticism and negativity and even sometimes like hate within leftist politics, but also sometimes it can be a detriment. How can the intellectual light web navigate just really, really extreme negativity stuff like and like maybe gulag jokes, uh, the extreme snark <laughs> yeah. that some people have or like harsh, overly personal criticism? Like, sure. do you have thoughts on where the line is here and how we navigate yeah. this stuff? Yeah, it's interesting because when I say intellectual light web, I mean, I I mean that I try and take an approach that is very joyful and very positive generally, that is hopeful. But at the same time, I, I could be scathing. I've written really, truly scathing articles about people and said really biting, mean, sarcastic things when I think they deserve it. But I, as you say, I'm really cautious about going across into seeming like an unpleasant person. I want to be real careful about that. I avoid, I don't, I don't really talk about gulags or, and I'm like, I stay away from guillotine jokes as well because like guillotines really disturb me. Like I'm really just disturbed thinking about heads. You don't take like, joy from the idea of beheading no, a human being and watch their body twitch out on the like, ground. Yeah. It's, That's, <laughs> it's just really upsets me. Some people are like taunt rich people by going, the guillotines are coming. Like there's part of me that thinks that's really funny because, it is so extreme and I get extreme humor but at the same time also like I really really don't like the death penalty and I just want to make clear that we're not serious about that I hope because I'm categorically opposed to the death penalty even for being like a landlord which I think is a serious offense (laughs) (laughs) you gotta be principled and and so it's a tough line to walk and the way I walk it is trying or, or there is a thing where, like, if I come away from social media feeling just really, like, covered in dirt or, like, I want a bath, I think something's gone wrong. And I feel that way sometimes when I just see things being called trash. And, you know, this is the trash. And I've gotten this, too, where I've accidentally tweeted the thing that didn't land and they go, this tweet is trash. Trash tweet. <laughs> and you go, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't realize how, that it was trash. Um, <laughs> so I feel like there has to be more compassion. I wrote a piece called, I think, Compassion and Politics and another one called Let's All Be Nice to One Another. But it's kind of a base level niceness rather than a uniform niceness. I'm not a sap. I do believe that you could say a sarcastic thing about Jordan Peterson, but also like charity and understanding, those are good things too. Yeah, I guess, and sort of the critique of niceness that you'd get from our friends on the left is like, oh, you're advocating Mm. for niceness. Are you, you're advocating to completely erase like the, the sort of like pain and strife, right? Like niceness can be something that's used sort of like as an eraser to not acknowledge difference, to, to not acknowledge tension to not acknowledge people who uh, have right. moral culpability for wrongdoing and like yes how do you square the circle Absolutely. like what is the good niceness yeah, there it, it's hard i mean it, because you're right often people who are nice are also really passive aggressive because you can't actually get rid of conflict right you can't pretend that conflict doesn't exist and there's a quote i don't know who it's from but there's a quote about what a, the definition of a gentleman and a gentleman is one who is never rude except on purpose and I like that because it's like the default is not being rude. I am a civil person. I treat people well. I am generous and fair to them. However, 
I also know when it is appropriate to be rude. Amber Frost wrote an article for us a couple of years ago called The Necessity of Political Vulgarity. And it's it's an article about knowing when it's necessary to be vulgar, which involves not being vulgar all the time, but doing it in a very calculated way in, in proportion to the amount that it's deserved or warranted. And so that's what I try and do is I try and be very restrained. And it also means that when you are rude or when you are un, kind of unpleasant, because your default is to be generous and nice with people, it really makes much, much more of an impact. Welcome to Seriously Wrong Storytime. Today's very special story is the true story of how Dave Rubin fell into the intellectual dark web. There once was a man named Dave Rubin, and he was a paid progressive political commentator for the Young Turks Network, running a show called The Rubin Report. His job was to interview guests while having a cursory understanding of left-wing politics. One day on his show, he was interviewing Larry Elder, who asked him whether there was still racism in society. Yes, said Dave Rubin, there's systemic racism. And Larry Elder asked him, what does that mean? What is systemic racism? And because Dave Rubin has no thoughts in his head, he was unable to answer the question. And instead of going and learning about systemic racism and what it means, he decided that because he couldn't describe it, therefore it wasn't real. And so Dave Rubin had a political awakening, and he left the Young Turks, got funding from the Koch brothers, and launched his own independent show, The Rubin Report. Okay, so if you wouldn't bake me a cake, that's okay. Mm -hmm. And yeah. now, because it's 50-50, I can't bake you a cake, which David's incredible. Uh, I'm, I'm Chef, I mean, and he would have done it kosher not, the whole wow. thing, man. Oh, yeah, now he, I feel bad. He would have done it for you. Can't have yeah. David's kosher cake now. If we were having an anniversary party, would you come? If I was inviting all the crew that we all know, and I'll even throw in some kosher food for you. You know, honestly, I'd have to think about it. I'd have to think about it in the same See, way. So that's interesting to me, because yeah, that's, that's a different thing. Well, it, not really, because again, it's the, from the religious perspective, the question is, are you glorifying something that you think is sinful? Yeah. Can you participate in that? So from a religious point of view, that's an actual serious moral question. Yeah. See, that's so interesting to me because it's like if I threw a regular party, just we were just right. having that party at my house and all the guys that's there, right, and for a gay and Sam and also, right? Like I'd bake you a cake that had nothing to do with a gay wedding. Right. And I would go to a party with you that has nothing to do with gay marriage. Could, would you bake me a regular cake? Could I just have a Thursday yeah, cake? Yeah, sure, I'd give you a cake. You, you, well, you well, what the hell not? I mean, yeah. my, my baking sucks. I'll just buy you one. You know, it's like a crock or a piece it. of crap. I mean, it's not going to be good, but, it's, but it'll be there. There's a lot there. You know what? But this is what we'll keep talking about forever, and it's all right. Exactly. Why is it that we're able to do this? And most people can't do this. Because That's what I'm curious Where he serves as a thoughtless receptacle for a parade of right-wing ogres to this day. That's a weird story, Aaron. Hey, Sean, would you be down to talking about the left that we want to build? Oh, the left that we want to build? Yes. Great. Uh, let me just get to... Uh... Hard hats and tool belts. Here you go. No, I can't build much without a tool belt. And we'll just go into the shop here. Oh, damn. I got stains on my coveralls. Wow, that happens if you're working hard. I think it's... Yeah, things are going to get stained when you're building. That's it why doesn't... you wear the coveralls, to protect the clothes underneath. Yeah, it's not like I'm going to just throw these coveralls out because they're not pristine anymore. No coveralls are going to be perfect. So the left we want to build. Some foundations. Empathy. I think 
Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Major, major foundation. That hammer? Sure. Yeah, I think yeah. empathy and, and a real sense of kindness and decency. I tend to default to kindness, and I find that it really helps me connect with people and keeps them open to my ideas. So, like when I I want people to connect with the left. And being funny and snarky and stuff can be good, and there's definitely like a place for it, but it, it can't come at the expense of legitimate curiosity. You can't build a good critique of an idea unless you understand it really well and so if there's not a minimum level of curiosity like you can build it that way but i don't know if it's going to stand up for very long <clears throat> yeah if you take a, a foundation of curiosity and kindness then on top of that you're able to build even bigger things like say an understanding of the, the spectrum of acceptable opinion expands pretty decently far beyond your opinion yeah it's uh it's compassion one and it's charity too it's like other people are human beings with thoughts and feelings and emotions and like if you don't have charity towards your opponents and compassion for people whose ideas are anywhere from slightly to very different from yours then it's going to make the left that we're building less effective rather than binaristic categories of trash and non-trash I think the left I want to build will have like a whole spectrum of like more or less trash. I like to think about it as food and like there's fresh food just out of the oven that I love, like a brand new meal. Yum, it's, yum. If I could, I'd want to eat that meal every day and I'd want all meals around the world to be like that. I'll be fresh, good meals that Aaron really likes. And then there's four hours later, it's kind of cold, it's been sitting on the counter. It's not as good anymore, but you know, I still, I, I have no problem saying that that's good and I would work with that. And even like the next day, you know, I'm far less enthusiastic about it. It's been in the fridge all night, but it's not even close to trash. Also, we need to consider that the word trash is part of the ideology of like not recycling. It's part of the ideology of having this massively inefficient infrastructure system that we have on planet Earth right now where some things are just treated as trash and thrown away. But a more holistic view, a better left, yeah. understands that waste equals food and that the end point of one thing's process has to be the start point of another thing's process. Yeah, that's really interesting, that the concept of trash itself, the, I, I hadn't thought of this before, but it's like a way of pretending that we can just sweep this stuff under the rug or sweep it into a landfill. It's just trash and then we don't have to deal with it anymore. It's like, no, this is all one closed system and there is some real trash, you know, like if we're talking about the metaphor and some people just have really bad ideas but they still live on this planet and they still are in this ecosystem so we can't just there's there's no rug to sweep them under there's no landfill to put them in where we don't have to think about them anymore unless it means the guillotine thing in which case yeah not into that Thanks. The left I want to build, you know, it's it takes things seriously. It, it doesn't just brush off things as unserious. The left I want to build is going to acknowledge what matters, but at the same time have, like, a lightness to it, a sense of humor, a sense of joy. And the left I want to build, we can eat food together and have fun and smile and laugh. And when we leave, we feel better than when we came in. And by leave, I don't mean become not leftists. Uh, you know, well, I mean... Even if you are a committed leftist, like you shouldn't be a leftist 24-7, you should take a break every now and then. Not like into regressive ideas specifically, but just on the scale of political to not political. Yeah, yeah, am I a leftist when I'm taking a shower? Not inherently, I mean maybe, if I'm thinking about the politics uh, of water or Very something. unprincipled, comrade. <laughs> every shower must be a meditation on the politics of water, you scumbag. 
and so with the intellectual light web, like why does politics need to be fun? Why does it need to be joyful? Does that run a risk yeah. of ignoring the severity of the crises that we face? Well, it's mainly so that you don't want to kill yourself because I think it's really bad when people want to kill themselves. And I, I, I mean, I'm quite serious. I, I mean, I know so many people who suffer with extreme depression, and it, in part, I think it's contributed to by the fact that they live in a depressing world. You know, your mental state is affected by your circumstances, by what you take in. And I think if if you don't have joy, you become unhappy. That just seems that seems very basic to me. There is this idea that somehow if humor involves making light of something, and I don't think that's true. I mean, I say intellectual light. You can be both at the same time. You can be light and serious. And I think one publication that really manages to do this well is The Onion. The Onion, like, make fun of everything, but there's like a moral core to their jokes. If you read especially Onion headlines about Israel recently, Mm. they're all funny. They're all jokes. They're not humorless. But at the same time, there's a real core of righteous outrage buried beneath the surface. And so those two things can coexist. And and, and I don't think there's any reason to say that outrage, that you can't be bitingly humorous even as you're being funny. And in fact... A lot of people who who hit hard from a moral or political perspective are funny. In fact, Noam Chomsky is often funnier than than people think he is. If you actually read Noam Chomsky's writings, there's a lot of sarcasm in there. Like when he talks about, you know, our our our, our glorious democracy and lists all the all the choices that you get under your democracy and they're just ridiculous. Um, you know, they're not choices. And, and so he can be really biting and sarcastic and so it can often help shed light and make it clear uh, how serious things are and what the stakes are. I recently had a friend of mine on this subject. She was saying, like, when I'm able to find people who are funny and talking about politics, I feel like I can make it part of my life more. Like, I can make it a normal part of my life to think about politics. It's not like this thing I have to go do and, like, get a certain time of the day just to get go get miserable and read about all the horrible things. <laughs> but it's just something yeah. – it, it's in the background of my life. It's, it's part of the, the spectrum of daily living. I want to. I, I have here issue seven of Current Affairs with one of your cartoons, oh, in, yeah. which is your guide to the inevitable future of 2045. And you have the future class hierarchy with the Silicon Mother Godhead ruling over the techno shaman Godhead interpreters, the CEOs at the next level, the programmers and robot repairmen, and then at the very bottom you have the haters who didn't work hard enough. <laughs> That's, that's hilarious, that pyramid of society. But also, it's kind of true, right? And it's illuminating. Not only are you making fun of the dystopia, but also you're telling us a lot about the the world that we're kind of moving to it toward in a very real way that I think helps inform people. Yeah, yeah. And I think for me, I always find really, really potent satire to help me zero in on like what's important like what is my ethical motivation for this stuff like those really biting onion headlines that you're talking about seeing them sort of we're taking dents out of the part of me that wants to not think about that yes. you know there's so much going on and it makes sense that people want to put up barriers but like a good joke that i laugh at it like it just it chips away at the part of me that wants to just ignore and and pretend i don't know the things that i know 
I love also your pie chart about the future of flying cars, which is uh, 9% of society own a flying car, 12% of society rent or share a flying car, and 79% are ground up into powder to manufacture flying cars. (laughs) I just, I just love But you know, you're not just being ridiculous. Like the, this is the kind of future that people like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk are, are genuinely trying to build for us, and they're real people who are who are genuinely pursuing a kind of techno feudalism that that uh, has a real risk of coming into existence. So I think we we probably have some people listening right now that are like, this intellectual light web stuff sounds pretty great. It's like the dirtbag left, except with a little more compassion. It's an inversion of everything wrong with the intellectual dark web it's centered in mm-hmm. the heart and joy and comedy as one of the techno shamans of this new uh <laughs> political like religion here like how can you be part of the intellectual light web well sean it's interesting because current affairs offers six issues for only 60 dollars <laughs> a year and with a current affairs subscription you're automatically included in the intellectual light web you become a member for yeah, life you get, one, you get like a golden ticket with it in the first yeah. issue you get <laughs> welcome yeah, to the intellectual yeah. light web tell your friends <laughs> And I, I'm a little bit serious there because I say, like, my whole project is to try and articulate this vision through the stuff we publish, right? So uh, I can define what I'm talking about in a sentence where I say, okay, it's a combination of kind of a libertarian socialist politics with a sense of fun and, and lightheartedness. But if I want to show you what I mean by that, I'm trying to do that through the stuff that we print. So it isn't just a buzzword. It's a it's a you get a sense of the sensibility as you're exposed to it. But yeah. So, I mean, I could describe what what I think is the outlook, which is just, you know, just combine left politics with being the kind of person people want to be around. (laughs) And then I'm recruiting the writers and the artists like yourself uh, who I feel really get that and really show that each in their different ways manage to express the kind of kind of sensibility I'm describing. Where can our listeners find your work and ideas, the intellectual light web movement online? Interesting that you ask, Sean. Actually, they can go to currentaffairs.org. We post all of our articles online free, but our print edition has a bunch of comic and illustrations and puzzles and stuff that aren't in the online edition. And if they go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash currentaffairs, they can listen to the Current Affairs podcast, which tries to capture this, this same kind of thing uh, in audio form. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show today, Nathan. And oh, thanks, this Sean. has been a lot of fun, a lot of good points here, a lot of things to think about. You know, that's brain candy. That's not just joyful. It makes you think. You know, I really, I'm going to turn away from Nathan, turn to the audience. I'm really quite serious when I say that this is the best magazine. I love this magazine. I love this podcast. I'm all about this shit. And not just because you're part of this magazine. Totally <laughs> not just because I've been assessment. part. Of, no, no. It was quite the opposite. <laughs> I wanted to be part of it because I was so enthused. And then I was mm. so ex- enthused and Good. excited to, to be part of it. <laughs> Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by How Steven Pinker is Doing Today. Hey, Steven Pinker, how are you doing today? I'm doing the best that I've ever been. Thanks for asking. That's how Steven Pinker's doing today, and that is true no matter what day you listen to this on. Well, that was great. I'm so glad that Nathan came on the show. And I really appreciate all of his articles on these guys because he demonstrates that curiosity about like what their actual ideas are, and all of his criticisms are specific and on point. And just to praise Nathan a little further, you know, after we did this interview with him, we asked on Twitter, 
prepping for the show, hey, does anyone have any good articles about the intellectual dark web? Because just thinking, you know, sort of bounce ideas off of it. Yeah, you know, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Read some stuff. People literally only sent us articles that Nathan wrote. Hey, check out this current <laughs> affairs thing on Sam Harris. And Nathan J. Robinson's wrote a bunch of great stuff. And we're like, yeah, we know. <laughs> Thanks, though. You're right. He, they are great. So, uh, Sean, does thinking about the horrors of the world ever make you feel kind of down? I mean, mostly not. Mostly I'm okay with not being brought there by politics. But, like, reading about climate change for, like, a couple weeks straight brought me there a couple times of, like, this hopelessness. And just sometimes stuff around, like, discourse and how people relate to each other and, like, interpersonal cruelty. Sometimes that brings me to a really sad, sort of, like, melancholy place where it just feels like this enormous, intractable problem that people can't relate to each other. And they just, like, flip out at each other over things. And, like, people who naturally should work together are just completely incapable of doing it for whatever reason. Like, that sort of stuff gets to me. Politics does bring me down sometimes. Sometimes when I think about kind of the crushing weight of history and, like, how all these, like, historical oppressions have these, like, hundreds or thousands of years of momentum behind them. It feels like you're pushing back against something that's just so big and so overwhelming. And, like, it, it, you know, it's certain ways of framing that can really feel like there's no way to fix it. Or just that it's too big, just that it's too big to fight back against. But the purpose of having a politics that recognizes those things is so that you can do something about it. And talking about these things in a way that encourages hopelessness or resolves itself in a hopeless feeling is counterproductive. And just, you know, <laughs> we want to win. We want to, like, <laughs> change things for the better. And I, I don't know how well hopelessness helps anyone change anything for the better. Well, that's that sadness and the pain and the mourning that comes with looking directly at some of the real horrors of our inherited situation. That negative feeling, that negative emotion is part of a fullness of experiencing life. And without yeah. having that full experience, like if we could just walk around and just never ever be sad when sad things happen, like that's obviously not beneficial. If you're not able to cry and be moved and be sad and be hurt by politics, then you're not having a full political experience. But hopelessness isn't a feeling. It's partially made of a feeling, but it's also partially made of a narrative. And like, it's this feeling of sadness mixed with this narrative that something can't be overcome. Like there's no chemical that fires in our brain that says, Hopeless. This cannot be overcome. Right. It's like, no, that's a narrative being applied to an emotional state. So I think like it's natural and understandable to experience hopelessness as a momentary narrative that you buy into when you're in a negative yeah, mind state. Or like a but, moment of despair or like, I think, yeah, if you never feel any despair at the state of the world, you're either not paying attention or you have a like severe empathy deficit. Yeah, or you've built up a wall to it yeah. somehow. But in any case, you're you're missing out on a totality of experience which could actually make your joy more vibrant and your optimism more informed like i think we need to look at the real grody sad 
nasty, painful, mean, cruel truth in order to then say, but I have hope, but I'm optimistic about what can change. And by understanding it in depth, then you're able to be like, oh, okay, now I realize what hope looks like in relation to this. Like you need that mm-hmm. basic part to come come from it. And I also I also happen to, to personally think, and this is maybe just an unsubstantiated belief, but I happen to personally think that it makes you funnier to look at horrible stuff like (laughs) what do you mean like like there's a lot of comedy to be had there in the horror you know and like being able to find like the comic lens on something horrible is one of the ways to process that information in a way that doesn't build this narrative of of hopelessness like a feeling of despair sure but then not the narrative of hopelessness and shooting ahead to like well here's What's funny about it? Often what's funny about it is you use that not okayness, you know, by presenting it in a certain way, this thing that's just obviously bad. It, it actually highlights how bad it is while at the same time making you laugh about it. I feel like it can actually be a, a way to give you a sense of control over it or that it's not bigger than you because you can contain it in something and laugh at it and then see it for what it is and hopefully find ways to work past it or transcend it. And I guess another good thing about laughing about comedy that's rooted in this sort of sad context is it gives you the tools to onboard and process information and actually makes learning and understanding the reality of situations something that's not only bearable but actually enjoyable and there's there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful about what's going on and like i think it's useful to keep your feet planted there not to shy away from criticizing what's wrong or acknowledging it has to be part of an arc that shoots for something liberatory because if it's part of an arc that says and then things got bad and that's how it will always be it's not only incomplete, it's self-harm in a way. And like I know sometimes it's not easy to recontextualize experiences or to like try and change the way you think about things. I'm not trying to give self-help advice, you know, put a smile on, find the world a funnier place, whatever. You know, like be as sad as you want when bad things happen to you. I'm sad but- all the time. I mean, not all the time, like frequently. I experience human sadness as well, and I think it's normal. Um, (laughs) But when we're talking about the socialist project, the left project, the liberatory project, how do we make people come to us? How do we make them associate us with fun, something they can participate in and help build this better world together? Well, it's not going to be by making them want to kill themselves. There's enough things in the world out there that are going to try to convince them to do that in one way or another. We now go back to Wrongtown Mall, where Mall Sam Harris is evaluating the rationality and objective goodness of another child. Thought experiment. There's an old folks home, okay. and there's been an outbreak of Ebola. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of infected dogs inside the old folks home about to burst outside and the only way to stop them is to demolish the old folks home you have a big kind of cartoonish lever that you push down 
and the building will pancake in on itself. Are you talking about the time that some of the most powerful people in our society demolished that old folks' home with people inside it to put up condos? No, 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 because there was no Ebola dogs. And also, I mean, the people who did that had good intentions, but even though the outcome was bad. But it's still an entirely separate discussion from this. This is cubed off from everything else. It's separate. It's in an ideal thought bubble. It has nothing to do with the real world. Context doesn't matter. You just need to answer the false question as described. You know, it's, I've, I'm leading you to an obvious answer here. The answer is you do the horrible thing. So that's what you need to say in order to be rational. So please just say that you would well, destroy you know what? a Sam thousand Harris, old people. You know what? Yes. I think for someone who's so concerned with objective morality... You put a lot of time and energy into thought experiments justifying literally the worst things imaginable as some sort of weird flex of rationality when there's a bunch of really fucked up real world stuff going on that you don't criticize or acknowledge that has real meaningful moral outcomes. If you were interested in objective morality, you'd have a critique of power structure that went a little deeper, Sam. Yeah, that's not rational. You're objectively evil. Next, kid. We now go back to Ben Shapiro apologizing. <clears throat> and there is uh, one other thing that I think I need to say I'm sorry for. In my laboratory last night, I invented an even more powerful microscope than my previous microscope and zoomed in even closer on the DNA of uh, what I thought was a biological man. And it turns out that while it does say H-E there on that Y chromosome, it's actually part of a bigger word which is they. So there are biological pronouns, but they're all gender neutral. So I was wrong. I want to apologize for all of the boring repetition I did and the banal cruelty that I displayed while bullying people on college campus stages after writing a book about how college students are bullies. That was all wrong, and uh, I take full responsibility. I'm. I'm going to change. Thank you. We now go to the biggest Dave Rubin fan on the planet. Yeah, you know, I watch Dave Rubin's show quite a bit. I uh, like all the guests he has on. I like the how they fight back against social justice warriors, and they're not afraid to say racist and sexist things and kind of stick it to the man in that way. And, you know, he's there while they talk. He doesn't add that much, but it's not like he takes away. He sometimes nods when I agree as well, and I feel a connection, I guess, a bit. And it's a well-produced show, lots of funding uh, from the Koch brothers, and it looks great. And, yeah, I watch it pretty frequently. That was the biggest Dave Rubin fan on the planet. We now go back to a father confronting his son about his obsession with Jordan Peterson. Um, hey, Sport, I just wanted to touch base vis-a-vis -vis our conversation earlier when you said I'm no longer your dad and you only listen to Jordan Peterson now and not me. I think that was a mistake, son. I think maybe I should continue to be your dad. Uh, okay, I can give you another chance. Can I ask awesome. you a question? Perfect. Yeah, ask me anything. I'm an open book. Would you ever hit me, like violently, physically strike me? Oh, no, son. I would never do that to you. I love you. You're my son. I wouldn't... Under no circumstances? No, it's... it's well, then it's... I can't respect you because... What, what, do you, what do you mean? Well, that's the only way that two men can respect each other if there's an underlying threat of violence. 
That's how we stay civil. I don't think that's how we stay civil, son. I don't think that's true. People have all sorts of interactions all the time where there's no underlying threat of violence. Actually, in most cases, violence people is People who you shouldn't respect. No, no. Like some of the most respectable people that you interact with, there's just no threat of violence. You have to be dangerous, Dad. And you have to contain that dangerousness. What are you that's what makes you strong and effective. I, um, I just... That's how men convince each other of things. That's why... We have such trouble convincing women of things, and they have to convince each other, because we can't hit them. Are you strawmanning Jordan Peterson right now, like doing a parody of his argument? No, this is his argument, that men are able to be civil with each other because of an implicit threat of violence. The strawman is that people said that he wants to hit women, when what he's saying is that women have to control each other. So that's his like actual position. Yeah. I mean, the father-son dynamic here makes it weird because he probably wouldn't actually advocate a father hitting his son, but we can ignore that. It's just if we're two men, that's his real position. There's so much philosophically incorrect about the assumption that respect is something that flows out of the threat of violence between men. And then the jump to the women thing, that's also weird too. There's a lot to talk about here. Yeah, it's really a dense, strange argument. That's a weird and bad position, son. And I believe it fully, 100%. We now go back to Sean and Aaron at the construction site working on the left that they want to build. The left I want to build, you spend some time in that house, in that building, in that left, and you feel energized when you come out. You don't feel drained. Try to make participating in it something that's a joy to be part of rather than something that's dreary or sad or depressing. That's how you chase people out of the left that you're building. And the left I want to build is really big and it, all the people can come in and we can eat food together and have fun and smile and laugh. I think the should be a big tent. I mean, not so big that, like, you don't want to have an open door to the worst people imaginable, but you ideally want to extend it as far as possible to include as many people as possible. Yeah, the goal of the left that I want to build is to make life better for all the people on the planet. So there has to be some sort of coming together. And even if there's a few people who actively work against that and we have to exclude them, like for the most part, this has to be a mass project that is participated in by all of humanity. It's, it, it can't be just an exclusive thing for an exclusive small group of people. Yeah, maybe part of the way of building oh, that. Oh, you should put your visor on. I'm going to saw this piece of metal. Okay, you don't want any sparks to yeah, hit your safety face. First. So what I was saying is that maybe Maybe in building this wide and inclusive left, we do need to sort of first build a smaller, less inclusive left that is able to sort of act as like the seeding flower that 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 the the midwives to the birth to the new society exactly yeah yeah so you can actually have very strict sort of conditions of inclusion on that that then helps grow and flourish this larger yeah. non-contradictory but distinct wider body yeah because that's a specific project you want and you can't be like everyone's gonna work on this one project the thing that includes everyone or almost everyone is the bigger goal of building a better society but like for the purposes of achieving political goals in the present then yeah you you do need to find like-minded people and work with them at goals that you all agree on yeah because you know you know what they taught us in carpentry school is that an organization that is allowed to debate its own purpose 
will debate its own purpose in circles until it's destroyed. Yeah, and that reminds me of the other main thing they taught us in carpentry school, which was when you're birthing a new building, you always want to be safe and have a safe birth. And I think that applies to politics as well, and to the left we want to build, have a safe birth of a new, beautiful society that works for everyone, where everyone's fed, sheltered, clothed, educated, and has the opportunities to pursue meaningful personal growth and creative expression, forever improving society until it's so perfect we all can't stand it and explode into the higher spiritual dimension. If that happens. That's what they say in carpentry school, but... Who knows? Yeah, that part gets a bit weird at the end. But yeah, that's the left I want to build. That's the left you want to build? Totally. The left I want to build gets a bit weird at the end. But in a good way, an ecstatic way. Let's uh, let's take a step back and look at our work. Let's see. We just uh, step back, look up, take off the visor. You know, Uh, there's things I like about it, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely a first shot, you know, first. Wouldn't say it's perfect. No, no. On one hand, you got the left you want to build, and there's the left you end up building. But hey, if we built it perfect the first time, there'd be no room for improvement. And where's the fun in that? Looks like we got a, a lot more work to do still. Ah, that we do, old friend. Can you pass me three hammers, please? Oh, sure, yeah. One in each of your arms? Yes. That was the episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. And if you got a little extra money weighing your wallet down... Hungry for bonus episodes? You a cookie monster, except the cookies are our episodes and you need more six dollars a month on patreon um it makes a huge difference to us to be able to keep doing the show and also thank you really deeply and sincerely to the people who are already doing that Uh, we've been able to do what we do because of it and it just makes a huge huge difference to us so thank you so much we have one more question seriously seriously wrong next time on seriously wrong Sam Harris marries one of his thought experiments. Oh, thought experiment. You know, you get me. You really get me. You understand that under very specific, constructed, surreal circumstances, it's okay to say that you would do genocidal things because the circumstances demand it and it's just objectively, morally right to do those things. I feel so safe within your cubed grid world of rationality. It's just sends shivers down my spine, and I'm so happy to be spending the rest of my life with you because we can be more rational than everyone else together forever. Mm. Would you give me a kiss? Kissing his thought experiment.